Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices at Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Chazinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andrew Hunter Murray. My fact is that babies practice their first words before saying them out loud, <laughs> which is very sweet. I love that. Wait, how do we know? Well... Uh, this is from a study at the University of Washington where scientists scanned babies' brains and observed what happened when they were being spoken to. Mm-hmm. And bits of their brains light up, different parts of the brain light up. Uh, and some of the bits are associated just with listening and taking in information. And other bits are associated with actually planning the motor movements that you need to say words. So even when they are listening, they are trying to figure out how to make that sound, basically. So that's what it is. It suggests that they're figuring out how to make sounds but yeah. don't they all finally reach the same word? Isn't it all mama? No. no. Is it not? No. no. Oh, I thought that was Far the first word. It. George Orwell's first word was supposedly beastly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Yeah. That says more about his mother than about him, yeah, I think. That's true. Considering you're at Animal Farm, though. That oh, is yeah, that's good. true. Yeah. Um, dada is the most common. 15% of babies, apparently, ah. have dada. Followed by daddy, 13%. Mama, 10%. Dad, 10%. Mummy, 8%. Mum, 7%. Cat, 2%. Dog, 1%. Ah. <laughs> I found a survey from 2014 where more than one in eight parents claimed their child's first word was tablet, as in a tablet computer. <laughs> yeah. Although this was a technology firm who make device protection cases... <laughs> Uh, who sponsored the uh-huh. research, yeah. and it also found that the babies break tablets a lot. So they sponsored the research, and by coincidence, that's the word yes. that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> babies, I think, might be a lot cleverer than we give them credit for. Um, there was a study done where they tested whether 100-hour-old babies, so a bunch of babies who are only a few days old, could count, and they'd show them a series of images with a certain number of uh, shapes on them. So they'd show them like a bunch of circles and one picture would have three circles in it, one picture would have four circles, one would have five circles, etc. And then at the same time, they would play them recordings with a certain number of like bleeps on them. Right. And when they played a recording of, let's say, three bleeps, then the babies would look towards the oh. picture with three circles oh. on it. And it was like they were connecting the... You know, they were counting the number of bleeps and then associating it with the vision. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, like four cool. days old. They can count up to 27 iPads, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read a thing about swearing in children, and it took children from 1 to 12, and um, it just measured a host of different swear words. So how frequently they use them. And so for one- and two-year-olds, the most frequent swear word that they use is poopy. Is this pre-curfew? Because if so, I don't think we're allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um that falls off very rapidly by the age of seven or eight. Um, okay. Jerk is big around for three and four-year-olds, then tails off, it has a huge dip in the graph. Do you know that uh, newborn babies recognise the theme song from their mum's favourite soap opera? Do they? They tested this, wow. uh, an old study in 1988. Um, yeah, they tested it. They also tested them on made-up words. Oh, yeah. So they made up a word like... I don't know, Titu or something, and they played it to them more than 25,000 times while the mother was pregnant. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and after birth, unsurprisingly, the baby recognised the word <laughs> and its variations, and other wow. babies didn't recognise it. Have you heard about the babies, the way babies grip? Newborn babies, the strength of their grip. Um, they can grip strongly enough to support their own weight. Wow. Yeah. Really? And I, they think that this is a hangover from... You I was know, just going to say from being a chimp and having yeah. to pull yourself up the hairs or something. Um, uh, so does that mean if you put your finger 
in yeah. a in a baby's hand and they grab hold of it, you could lift it up. Yeah. And you know how I know that with such confidence? In 1891, back in the good old days, <laughs> a researcher dangled 60 newborns from a walking stick <laughs> to see how long they could last. <laughs> Wow. And the, the longest lasted two minutes 35. Right. And the shortest lasted 10 seconds. Oh, wow. <laughs> two minutes 35. Yeah. <laughs> How long was this stick that he could get 16 <laughs> infants dangling? That is incredible. 60. 60. 60. Yeah. 60. There yeah. must be one at a time. I think it was. I'm um, sadly. I think it was one at a time. Right. Um, another thing babies can do, which I think is quite exciting, is they have. They seem to have an innate awareness of organs and how bodies work. So there was a study done where um, there were like moving toys given to a bunch of toddlers, um, and then they split the dolls in half. And they showed them to the babies, and they made it so the dolls were completely hollow on the inside, and the babies were really confused. So when they split a doll in half and there was nothing on the inside, the babies would like show obvious signs of bewilderment and like look inside <laughs> properly, as if to say, "Where the hell are his organs? It's alive." I don't think that shows detailed knowledge of human anatomy. Though. I wouldn't trust them to do an operation. Yeah. I'd still go for Doctor A, the adult doctor, not Doctor B, the, the baby, baby in the coat. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know that um, babies can't taste salt until they're four months old? Um, they can also taste with their cheeks, which we can't do. <laughs> Isn't that cool? As in if they could just hold a thing to their cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is delicious. <laughs> it needs more basil. <laughs> more salt. I mean, I don't know, actually. <laughs> it has to be the inside of their cheeks, sadly. Okay. But even so, quite cool. They've got Imagine taste buds could... all over their cheeks. They've got taste buds on their cheeks. That's very cool. That would be really fun. It's a weird idea being able to taste with your cheeks. We could once do it. <laughs> so I was reading a story in um, the British newspaper archive in the Daily Gazette for Middlesbrough in 1887. And a man's written this letter into the newspaper. This man got on a train in 1887. A man in his early 20s got on the train carriage with him and was holding a baby, even though the man looked very young to be engaged in such a manner. So, you know, early 20s, bit young to have a baby. Um, the baby started crying and the man pinched the baby quite hard and it started crying a lot more. Um, and so a couple of women nearby said, oh, if you, do, if you keep doing that, you shouldn't do that to a baby. If you keep doing that, we're going to call security. And the young man said... I'll do what I like, and taking the baby by its long robe, began to swing it around and around so that its head came into contact with the door frame after each revolution, and the shrieking became terrific. And then, bang, the train stops, the man gets out, leaving on the seat a broken Yankee rubber baby, which is a prank doll they used to have oh. in the 1880s ah. that apparently young men would take onto trains in order to terrify the living shit out of everyone else. <laughs> wow. I think you mean the living poopy. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It sounded like it was going to be a really traumatic That's story. That's awful. And then it was just a doll, though, Andy. It's still awful, though. Yeah, it's I'm, still traumatic. I yeah. haven't recovered from the awfulness, <laughs> which I guess is the whole point of the prank. Yeah. yeah. What a yeah. good prank that it's still affecting people, even <laughs> yes. just hearing about 130 it. 130 years later, yeah. I'm upset You're because upset. of that bastard on this the train. This man should be so happy. My God, he must be happy in his grave right now. Isn't I'm that cool? glad he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for fact number two, and that is Chazinski. My fact is the first pair of Nike trainers were made in a waffle iron. Who's going to quibble with my pronunciation of Nike? Nobody. Nobody. Okay, no, ma'am. Nobody. And I reckon, <laughs> I reckon you're asking for a reason, right? 
you, I mean, technically, I guess we should say Nike because that's no. how you pronounce Nike. it in ancient Greek. Well, that's how you pronounce the ancient Greek. I always Greek. say Nike. You no. definitely shouldn't say no, Nike. No, we have got some very exciting news. Two people wrote to the founder, the co-founder of Nike, to ask, and he wrote back to them, it's Nike. Uh, they wrote to Philip Knight. Uh, he's the chairman, and I believe he's the co-founder. He of, should change of his Nike. name. Uh, Philip Knight? To Nike. To Nike. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or he should change it to Nighty. <laughs> <laughs> but he, they sent him, and they wrote the phonetic pronunciation of right. both. He just All he did was just circle and send it back to them, and he wow. circled Nye-key. As in a key opening a door. Yeah. So it's right. Nike. It was named Nike was named by the first ever Nike employee who was called Jeff Johnson. Really? Um, but it means victory in Greek, which you would pronounce in ancient Greek, Nike. Oh, we think. Right. So I mean, maybe they're wrong about the pronunciation of their own brand. But Nike was the goddess, or Nike, Nike. was the goddess of victory. Yeah. But I read that the thing she did was to fly around the battlefield, lifting people up and bestowing honours on them and things like that. So she wouldn't ever have needed shoes. Ah, is that ironic? No way. Hmm. Um, sorry, Waffle Iron. Yeah, sorry. So we should go back to the... Uh, so the first row of Nike trainers um, were made by Bill Bowerman, who was the Nike co-founder. And he'd worked for this company making shoes um, for a few years. But in 1971, uh, they released the first line of like completely Nike trainers with the Nike label on them. And the way he designed them was... So they had a special way of gripping the ground. He wanted to design like a better pair of running shoes, revolutionized running shoes that could work on a whole bunch of surfaces and design them with better grip, but not with like spikes, like football spikes, which would dig into the ground. And he was discussing this conundrum, like how to develop trainers with good grip with his wife over breakfast. And she got some waffles out of the oven and she was brainstorming at the time and saying, why don't you try attaching some bits of my jewelry or something to the bottom of shoes and seeing if that works or something like that. He was like, yeah, you know that waffle you're holding? What if we turn that upside down and put it on the bottom of a trainer? And then he disappeared, um, went back to his lab, got two cans of like this liquid plastic that you use to make trainers, came back, seized the waffle iron off his wife, poured the liquid plastic into the waffle iron, and there was born the first sole of uh, Nike trainers, which is that waffle sole. So th- I, I think this resurfaced recently because they found the waffle iron. Yeah, they did. And I, I read that when they found this old waffle iron, which had just been in a rubbish tip at the back of the, the founder's garden for ages and ages. Wow. Do you know why it was in a rubbish tip? No. It was because he... So it wasn't even in a rubbish tip. It was buried because Bill Bowman, in the place that he lived in America, it was like up a hill or something, and it was too far for um, like rubbish truck drivers to come. And so he'd just bury it all in the garden. And his granddaughter or daughter, I can't, I think it was a daughter, wasn't it? Was just like found this a few years ago. It was like, there's this huge pile of stuff buried in our garden. Just wow. rubbish. He didn't live on a hill at first. He just kept on burying <laughs> all of his household waste. And eventually he did. But when they discovered this thing, I, I read this line. Um, it truly is the headwaters of our innovation, Nike historian Scott Ream said. From a historian's standpoint, it's like finding the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's not. Mm. No, and also, historians do kind of like the Titanic as well, don't they? Yeah, it's exactly. Like the same thing. It's yeah. not like the history equivalent of finding the Titanic, because <laughs> the Titanic is the history equivalent of finding. But but <laughs> but Nike has a um, Nike has a historian. Yeah, that makes sense. It must it must be a really easy job up until the mid twentieth century. <laughs> <laughs> 1875, still nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, like 400 BC, goddess of victory. 1912, Titanic sinks. Don't really give a shit about that. (laughs) (laughs) From a historian's point of view, this would be like finding the first ever Nike shoe. (laughs) 
The wharf line that was used to make this first pair of trainers had been in use in the Bowerman family since 1936. Wow. This was quite impressive. Oh, they must have been pissed off when he broke it. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so casual, just ruining it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he broke resentment. it, did he? He broke it. It was not usable after that. Oh. Yeah, I think it tasted of, like, hot plastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know where waffles come from? The, they're actually derived from religious wafers. Oh, Used really? for communion, yeah. as well as just to make food. But uh, they, you used to have wafer irons, which in French were called moules à oubli, and they had biblical scenes on them. That was really? the first waffle design. And communion wafers normally had a picture of Jesus and his crucifixion on them, because they were for holy use. Interesting thing about um, communion wafers is Catholics at least do this. Um, you would go up and they would put the uh, wafer directly into your mouth. And the reason that they did that is to stop people from stealing them because people used to get them in their hands, pretend to put them in their mouths and then take them home. And they would do like uh, magic incantations with them oh. or sprinkle them on the crops to make them grow better. Or, if someone's or pour sick... golden syrup and bacon over them <laughs> and enjoy Canadian <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> well, speaking of untrustworthiness which i guess that <laughs> speaks to waferers which were people who sold waffles um or wafers in the 16th 17th century were apparently notoriously untrustworthy so they were described uh, in literature at the time as designing persons thieves etc who took up wafering as a cloak for dishonest practices and they appear in various literature uh, in the 15th 16th centuries like chaucer as typically bad people and they had to be <laughs> abolished in 1826 the practice of being a waferer because wow. uh, they were so untrustworthy also, I like this quote. I can't remember where I read this um, in some history magazine, but it was Charles the Ninth who enacted the first ever waffle legislation in 1560. So, as well as being untrustworthy, I think they were quite violent waferers <laughs> or oubliés, as they were, as you said, they were called in France, and they kept on getting into fights with each other when they were selling too close to one another. So, the first waffle legislation was to say exactly how much space there had to be between <laughs> two wafer sellers, because otherwise they couldn't be trusted not to beat the crap out of each other. That's why they had. A picture of the crucifixion on them. It was Jesus saying, "You have to be this far apart, guys. No fighting." Um, you were saying about how waffle guys were untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. Well, these days they are quite trustworthy. Uh, the Waffle House in America. Um, they are famous for staying open no matter what. If there's a disaster, they'll stay open, and they, they pride themselves on you always be able to go there and get a waffle if there's a problem. Uh, and that means that the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, if ever they see that a waffle house is closed, they know that that's the kind of place they need to go and give aid to because that must be the worst. If the waffle house closed, then it must be pretty No bad. way, then that's, that's the apocalypse. Yeah. That's amazing. So they always, so when disaster strikes, they still... When disaster strikes, if there's loads of different counties that are obviously all kind of in trouble. Yeah. If the Waffle House is closed in one of them, they'll go... Wow. It's quite a good tip, though, actually, if you own a Waffle House in a disaster-struck area, to close it, and that's going to bring help. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're the mayor of a disaster-struck area, blow up the Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> also a good tip. Um, there are 60,000 Nikes um, which fell off a ship, and... <sighs> They are followed by um, meteorologists and oceanographers to see the, um, the currents of the oceans. Wow. Oh, cool. Uh, in the same way that those rubber ducks were at that time. Yes. Do they say things like, we've been running some experiments? <laughs> no? <laughs> I would have thought they would say that all the time. <laughs> sure they do. I would love it if you went into that office, you said that, and it was the first time they heard that. <laughs> and you were the hero of the office. You met Andy, he's amazing. Hi, I'm here for my training. Are there any trainers about? <laughs> 
Um, I don't want a waffle. Oh, no, it's too far. It's <laughs> too far. They won't get that one. <laughs> In the corner, the Nike historian's pissing himself. <laughs> Um, these Sorry, yeah. these um, shoes um, that fell off the ship, they're still wearable. If you find them on a beach, you can still wear them, um, which means that people collect them and they have impromptu swap meets where people who have two lefts like swap one wow. for a right. Or if really? they have two different sizes, they try and swap them. That's amazing. That is really incredible. There's a charity called Because International, which has developed a shoe that grows with your foot. Um, so that because it's a one a major problem in developing countries is that oh, people can't afford shoes and so they're barefoot all the time they grow out their shoes and it can grow up to seven sizes I think um, so it grows by sort of curving outwards as your foot grows so as a kid you can have it when you're you know that's four really and still that's have it when you're amazing. twelve isn't that wow. so cool that yeah. is cool so there's a theory that shoes emerged forty thousand years ago. Which is way earlier than our original estimate. We thought that we'd had them for maybe five or ten thousand years. Okay. But there's a scientist uh, from Washington University called Eric Trinkhaus, and he found the time in history where toe bones began to get smaller, because oh. for most of our history we've had really, really big toe bones because we were doing lots of walking and climbing and carrying things around. But then forty thousand years ago, we kept our big leg bones. They stayed the same size, but our toe bones started. So we all smaller. used to have like big clown feet. Yes, wow. let's say that. Cool. Yeah, and he's, he was trying to work out what would remove stress on toes, but not on legs. And he says that's shoes. shoes. Yeah, but they couldn't just make bigger shoes <laughs> to yeah. fit our toe bones in. I'm not sure how much our toes shrank. Uh, in my clown. in my imagination, they shrunk quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> This conundrum. What are we going to do? Our feet won't fit into these tiny shoes we keep making. I guess we'll just have to wait for our feet to evolve into smaller feet. <laughs> okay, time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact is rats dream of places they want to visit. Hmm. What, like the Taj Mahal? Or... <laughs> yeah. Maybe if they if they basically whenever a rat uh, gets shown something while they're conscious, they found this in mazes, um, and they'd see somewhere that they couldn't go to. Then when they went for a nap, rats have naps. Uh, they would scientists found that they were dreaming about what it'd be like to actually get into that place and then get the thing that they think might be in there. So they start dreaming about all these unattained places that they'd like wow. to visit because either they've seen a bit of cheese in it or yeah. And we know that by because they look at inside their brains which neurons are firing when they go yes. around the maze when they're awake, don't they? And then when they fall asleep, you look at the same neurons are firing. So they're obviously reliving going around the maze. And it's yeah. really sad that we've decided that means the only place a rat wants to visit above and beyond anything else is the bit of food in the maze that we planted there in the experiment they did yesterday. The interesting thing here is that we can tell what rats are dreaming about. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? From what I've read, and uh, I do find it very hard to break through scientific jargon sometimes, but it sounds like, as Hannah was saying, they look at these neurons that are firing off and they can see that they're making similar connections. Um, I think there was a tiny thing about their actual like physical movements of their body as Ooh. well, kind of suggesting, I'm well, going left, I'm going right, <laughs> <laughs> I think. I, I might be wrong about that. 80% um, of dreams are about normal things, like doing the washing up or being at work. Yeah, that makes sense. Does yeah. it? 100% of mine. 
Sorry, but then again, just... um, 5.2% of men have kissed a monster in their dreams. Uh, 3.4% have had foreplay with an animal. Yeah. And 1.7% have had sex with an object, plant, or rock. <laughs> an object. Because yeah. plants and rocks are objects. <laughs> Kissed a monster. Do you think a monster as in like a mermaid or a... Oh. Is actual... a mermaid a monster? I, I, I think it'd be classified as a monster, yes. Yeah. Okay. A monster truck would come under object. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> what about some monster munch? Object. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a term for people who study dreams in science, and it's onerology. And it's not what the interpretation is, it's why we dream. And, and so it's not, you know, oh, if yeah. your teeth fall out, you're stressed, that kind of stuff. There's a really good book by Richard Wiseman called Night School, mm-hmm. which has a lot of stuff about dreaming. It says the guy who came up with the term rapid eye movement, uh, I think his name was Asarinsky or Asarinki, uh, he nearly called it jerky eye movement. Oh, yeah. Which is quite a nice thing. But then it had negative connotations to the word jerk, because mm. a lot of three- and four-year-olds were using it to slag each other off. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it could have been called that. So humans get erections in dreams, male, <laughs> male ones, that is, male humans. I think uh, and it's during REM sleep, which is usually where dreams happen. A lot of other animals, uh, rats as well, they get them. Uh, get erections during REM sleep, but apparently the armadillo is the only animal to get erections in non-REM sleep. Wow. Wow. What? <laughs> it's just a fact. That is so That's weird. That's a great fact. Yeah. Is wow. it embarrassing for a rat when it gets an erection, do you think? The rat. Yeah, because yeah. it's never wearing a jacket, so it can't cover it up. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I always wonder why you always came into work in a jacket. <laughs> summer here, and Andy has got this long trench coat on. <laughs> I've got another jacket under this one. <laughs> uh, you know, rats feel regret after they make a poor choice oh, in life. Do they? Yep. Uh. They did an experiment where they gave them the chance to eat food now after waiting for a bit, or just move on to the next thing. And if they chose to move on, then the the next food offering was worse. Oh. And they sh- they paused and they looked at the good reward that they now couldn't have. And then later on they changed their decision when they were run through it again. So they think that that is them showing regret. And they didn't do it when they encountered bad food without having chosen accidentally the bad food. We do seem to anthropomorphize rats a lot, or science does at the moment. Like There are a lot of studies that come out saying, yeah, rats feel regret. There's one that claims rats feel empathy, which is also very plausible. So this study got two rats to live together for two weeks or something, so they bonded, learned to be mates. Um, And then researchers locked one of them in a cage, which could only be opened by the other rat from the outside. And they found that the other rat would always open the cage, even when there was no apparent benefit for the other rat so even if opening the cage released the rat into a separate room so there wasn't even the social advantage of having that rat hang out with you now the rat would still go and open the cage first thing I think they even put food in there and the rat would open the cage before it went and ate the food because it wanted to free its mate because it wanted to free the mate apparently that's what we've decided oh that's nice isn't it that's good they also um, they also um, they piss on food that they want to mark as edible Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Have you seen the fridge recently in the office? (laughs) I think they're marking it as formally edible, really. (laughs) You had some cake at my last birthday, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone complained, but it was edible cake. (laughs) Very moist, this cake. (laughs) Is it? It's urinal cake. (laughs) (laughs) Is it irony that in the act of signposting something that's edible, you make it no longer edible? Like is that that's like a catch twenty two, isn't it? Yeah. 
Mm. All I know is that no one came to my following birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on rats' brains, Mm -hmm. uh, they've... We've managed to get rats to communicate with each other mentally across oceans. So scientists, again, experimenting on rats willy-nilly to their heart's content. But they've connected the brains of a pair of rats. And uh, so one rat can be in the US, one rat can be in Britain. And they've connected their brains up um, so they can share sensory information with each other. And they've trained the rats so that if they press a lever in a certain box that they're in, then they'll get some food. But they've trained them to communicate mentally with each other. So um, they'll... So let's say there's the rat in the US has got a lever, but the rat in the UK has not got a lever. And the rat in the UK will send a sensory signal to the rat in the US saying, press that lever now and we'll both get food. And then the rat in the US presses the lever based on signals it's receiving in its brain from the rat in the UK. And then they both get the food reward. Isn't that insane? And the scientist who did this, one of the scientists said, um, apropos of nothing, this was written up on in New Scientist or something. And the scientist in charge said, I don't think there's any risk of super smart rats from this. I'm not worried about an imminent invasion of rat multiborgs. Well, neither was I until neither then. Neither we. <laughs> <laughs> rat multiborgs? Yeah. <laughs> He's coined a word. He's worried. <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that humans used milk as paint for 40,000 years before anyone thought to drink it. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so very basically, um, the first use of milk-based paint is about uh, 49,000 years ago. Uh, and the first use of milk as a drink, as in the first time humans could even digest cow's milk, was around seven or 8,000 years ago. That is so weird. I like the idea that 40,000 years from now, somebody will be doing a podcast saying, did you know that uh, humans used to use paint as paint for thousands of years before they worked out we could drink it? <laughs> That's true. Hmm. It's very optimistic for the medium of podcast as well. <laughs> it's a young medium. Um, there is a woman who uh, paints with milk at the moment. She's called Millie Brown. She drinks coloured milk and then she regurgitates it onto canvas. Oh! I read an article about her and it said, and I quote, she has mastered the art of regurgitation. Right. <laughs> the art of regurgitation. All babies also are sort of novices in the art of regurgitation, but she has got it down. <laughs> Um, there are a few artists who use bodily um, fluids for <laughs> oh, for painting. Yep. Um, so one is uh, Rose Lynn Fisher, who made a series of landscapes using a hundred different varieties of tear. Varieties? Yeah, so I think the way she th- sees it is you could have a really, really upset tear, or you could have a cutting onions tear, oh. or 98 other types of tear. Oh. <laughs> That's where you fall down, isn't yeah. it? That's the only two examples she ever has to use before someone interrupts and goes, oh, we get the idea, and she thinks, phew, because I did not have a third. <laughs> um, oh, there are loads. Okay, we don't need to go through the various different ways in which any, you cry, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> when Anna says hurtful things like that. Yeah. <laughs> no one eats his urine cake. <laughs> Here's something. Before World War II, uh-huh. skimmed milk was just thrown away. It what? was just discarded. Nobody drank skimmed milk. What? Why did it they make discarded. it? It was discarded. It was fed to pigs. Because ah. um, you cream off the top stuff. And yeah, yeah. so much of it was just poured into rivers. Wow. Yeah. It was only sold when marketers realized, because a lot of it's uh, creamed off to make butter, the top bit, um, and loads of it was just chucked away. And then marketers realized, A, that people were getting really annoyed saying the stream is full of discarded milk. 
And secondly, they realised it could be marketed as a, as a weight loss device. Wow, that's, that's really amazing. interesting. Um, another thing that they did during the war with uh, milk was make plastic out of it. Huh. Uh, you can... The casein... Casein? is a protein which you get in milk, uh, and that can be somehow, by adding acid, can be turned into a very brittle but still usable plastic. And apparently they used it even for aeroplanes. <laughs> I read it was to glue them together. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God, I don't trust that. Really? Yep. Are the wings are glued on with milk? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Hang on, yeah. the wings are glued on at all? <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely not going to get a plane. You've made a model well. plane, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Just think bigger. I okay. you know. St. Cuthbert chopped his own leg off in remorse after speaking angrily to his parents. <laughs> and it was then repaired with a cast made of milk. Oh. Mm. The story of St. Cuthbert. I just want to say this. There is a really fantastic book called Milk, A Local and Global History by Deborah Valenze, which is where I got lots of my stuff from. Oh, okay. yeah. It's really good. If you like milk, it's an absolute <laughs> rip-roaring treat. <laughs> I love milk. Yeah. Do you know what animal exclusively drinks milk? Ooh. The only thing they ever drink. Yeah. Dolphins. Yes. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah. Because they don't drink when they're adults. They, they don't only drink. drink. The only thing they drink is their mother's milk. Ah. So they, all they've ever known is the sweet taste of milk. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading something about dolphins today. Um, it was someone's done some research on dolphin vaginas. Um, to see some, some pervert <laughs> <laughs> has hastily come up with a reason why they're in the lab with Squeaky. <laughs> with squeaky. <laughs> he certainly was after that experiment. <laughs> um, anyway, part of that um, that article, one of the things they said is that if a female um, dolphin doesn't want to have sex, then one of the ways that she does it is by putting her vagina out of the water, so that the male can't get out. <laughs> Presumably, some people have gone dolphin watching <laughs> and they've just spotted a load of females poking their vaginas out of the water. It's not exactly Jaws with the dolphin <laughs> fin, is it? Well, it's not exactly Flipper e either. I think it's the same person who did the uh, famous work on duck vaginas and duck penises, how they don't kind of fit together oh, properly. Yeah. Ah. Right. Yeah. So you get just sort of vagina scientists. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, dolphin milk is almost 50% fat. That's it. And cow's milk is 4% by way of comparison. So it is wow. really, really thick. And it's, isn't, we've said, I think, before, it's like toothpaste. It's so thick. Also, it's really hard for baby dolphins to uh, drink while they are in fluid themselves. They can roll their tongues up so they're like straws. And their tongues form this watertight seal, which keeps the milk in and keeps salt water out. So they don't drink any of the salt water. So ah. it has to be, you know, fluid transfer within another liquid. It's very, very, very difficult. Right. Mm. Uh, another milk that used to be very popular is ass milk in the 18th Ooh. century. Uh, Donkey um, milk, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just checking. Why are you laughing at that? That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> Call it poopy milk, please. <laughs> ass milk was so popular in the 18th century that um, there was even a Mrs. Dawkins of Bolsover Street who was the ass milk provider for the... Uh, <laughs> just wondering if I can change the job title. <laughs> just the donkey milk, actually. <laughs> We've had the, uh, the name label printed now, so... Uh, she was the ass milk salesperson to the royal family. Wow, they had... Because it, was it expensive, or was uh, it... It was expensive. It was used as, like, a cure-all for anything that was wrong with you, you would take ass milk. <laughs> it was even used as a face wash and to shine shoes... 
Mm. So it's used for everything. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Was it expensive because donkeys are fewer than cows? Uh, That is true, and also they produce a lot less milk. So in ancient Greek times, Mm -hmm. one uh, remedy for women who had trouble conceiving was to pour milk into their vagina. Oh, yeah. Did it work? Don't think so. No. Why, what was the logic behind that? Did they have logic back then? <laughs> was there no, did did anyone ask for logic back then? <laughs> they just said that. Uh, well, they supposedly invented logic, didn't they? The ancient Greeks. But okay. I don't think. Well, it sounds logic. like they had to because eventually <laughs> <laughs> questions started being asked. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Why are we putting the milk in my vagina? <laughs> what do you mean, why? Yeah. <laughs> so you guys could try producing milk, and I would like one of you to do this. Okay. So you, because you obviously have the um, the glands which allow you to produce milk, but right. you just don't have enough prolactin. But apparently, if men massage their nipples, you can stimulate. Um, uh, you can get a spike of prolactin, which means that you're able to wow. produce milk from your nipples. Um, how long do you have to massage for? <laughs> I'd just try it and tell me. Oh, okay. Well, I've no, been, because I don't know. I've been unwittingly preparing for this experiment for years. <laughs> That's why I've got the holes in my raincoat. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this show, we can be found on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to our group account on Twitter, which is at QI Podcast. Also, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes, also links to the live shows that we're doing. We'll be back again next week with another show. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>